Around uh, eight years ago, I was working at a different church, the first church I was ever a minister at, and uh, we had a young woman uh, join our church uh, called Chantel. I'll call her Chantel. And uh, she joined our church from a different church in moved areas, and, and the church she joined us from uh, was a terrific church, uh, and it's where she first heard about Jesus and first professed faith uh, in Jesus, but she moved areas. So she arrived with us, and, um, and the pastor from that church called me and um, and so I got to catch up and meet her beforehand. Uh, and something became very, very clear immediately, which was that um, Chantel loved her old church. I mean, <laughs> she would not stop talking about it. Oh, the pastor, oh, the preaching, oh, the growth group, oh, the music, the community, the people. And I sat there going, oh, every single compliment making me feel you're not going to like being with <laughs> You know, I just felt completely inadequate. Um, and it uh, turns out uh, I was right to feel inadequate um, because when she became part of our church family, um, it almost became like a game of bingo at church to, to spot every time she would mention her old church in growth group or on Sundays in a comparison. Um, that she, she, um, she, she was living there mentally and, and the constant comparison was really... Um, Difficult and a really hard thing for us, and, and can I say hard for her? So she ended up leaving our church and going to another one, and I think um, some people um, went with her to make sure she settled. But after a while there, um, that wasn't good enough either, and so she stopped going to church. Um, and then she uh, she wandered from her faith, um, and today she she's not a Christian. The past can be dangerous for us. Um, when we nostalgically uh, create a past, um, we glorify what's happened in the past and constantly compare it to the present. Um, it can make us prisoners um, of what's happened and make it impossible for us to actually grasp hold of, um, of what's happening in our lives, what God is doing in our lives, um, and, and, and understand um, how, how we're meant to keep growing and, and moving forward in our Christian lives, it, it, it's a difficult thing, something we need to be aware of as Christian people all the time, the, the danger of um, nostalgia. Um, the book of Hebrews that we've been studying for the last four weeks, five weeks, is written to a church who know all about what it means to be uh, imprisoned by their past. They were uh, a group of Christians, the church who originally received this letter, uh, Christians who were converted from Judaism, from from. Uh, Jew, uh, the Jewish people, they become Christians, and, and they felt the acute pressure from their family, their friends, their community, their wider um, society um, uh, to continually abandon their faith in Jesus and return to the past, return to the faith they had had in the past. And they felt this pull um, constantly that what they had previously was better than what they had now, that what they had previously was better than, than Jesus. Jesus was an inferior um, product. And I want to say, whilst it's very unlikely, certainly here on the Central Coast, that we're going through the exact same cultural uh, pressures and temptations, uh, although there is a version of it um, for many of us who've become Christians from non-Christian families, um, uh, that there is a, a pressure, isn't there, that you feel upon our conversion. But even if it's uh, not an experience we've had specifically, I do think this does point us to a temptation um, a danger that is prevalent for, for all Christians, and that is the danger of living in the past um, and constantly comparing it to the present, and so being unable to see what God is doing today. Um, 
It might be looking back to your life before you were a Christian. It might be looking at the lives of other people you know who are not Christians with jealousy and regret about your own decisions. Or it might be the Christian version, which is looking back at a previous time in your spiritual life, maybe when you were captured by zeal and, and energy for Jesus or a great you know, pastor or preacher or whatever it was, and thinking, ah, oh, I'll never have that again. Those days are gone. The past um, is a wonderful place to visit, but a terrifying place to live. A terrible place to live. And the book of Hebrews has as its heartbeat, um, we see it here in the title, an encouragement for us, for the Hebrew church and for us today, um, that whatever temptation we're facing, whatever uh, struggle and trial and, and, and pressure, um, hold fast to Jesus. It's written as an encouragement to persevere. Uh, a warning for the consequences of, of falling short, but also um, a wonderful picture of what happens when we do hold fast, when we continue walking with Jesus um, at the centre of life. Um, and the way uh, forward that we're given by Hebrews, and, and can I say we see it beautifully, unspeakably beautifully today in today's passage, um, is not through self-reflection. It's not through a constant assessment of the past with ourselves and the present and oh, what, what routine do I need to fix and so on and so forth. No, no, no. The way forward for us as Christians to persevere, to keep going, um, to resist the pressure is to fix our eyes not on the mirror but up on Jesus. N not to live in the past but to live assured of the eternal future that is ours in Jesus and the promises that he gives us for then and for now. Um, to understand Jesus properly, to make much of him, um, is to grow our faith strong enough to resist any temptation and to understand the help that he can give us. And it's that word help that I want to sort of be reverberating around our brains today. Can, can you get the word help? Um, because the Bible, Hebrews tells us Jesus gives us help. Um, tangible, practical, pragmatic, real, personal help. Uh, and we see it in, in the reading. So come to verse 16 for me of chapter 4. Um, this will be our sort of building block of a verse for us today that I, that I want us to, to, to have in our minds as we look at the rest. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the question we need to answer as Christian people or if you're not a Christian, the question you might be considering for yourself maybe for the very first time is, what kind of help does Jesus give me? How is he able to give me help? Is he, is he willing to give me help? And what does it look like in my life to, to accept that help? And so they're the, um, the questions we're, we're going to be looking at today. Um, and I, I want us to begin actually by considering uh, question two and three, which is, um, Jesus' qualifications, his ability, uh, and his willingness to help. Um, whether Jesus is actually someone we, we should be turning to for help, whether he's actually able to do it. So, so come with me. Um, you see the passage is split in two, helpfully, by, by the chapter break. Very, very um, well done. Uh, chapter 5 does begin a new section for us. But I want you to just focus on the first um, three verses we read, 14, 15, 16 of, of chapter 4. Um, what we have given here is a picture of Jesus today of who Jesus is. And so in the face of trial and temptation, Hebrews is trying to point us, not inwardly, but outwardly, upwardly to Jesus to grasp hold of, of a picture of him that will be helpful. Um, look at verse 14. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. You want to grow in your faith, to be strong in your faith, you need the ability um, to understand Jesus. Uh, we're told several things. He ascended into heaven. You see that here after Jesus died and rose from the dead. We're told he, he's, he, he goes through the clouds to heaven where he resides today. Hebrews 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, tells us that he is seated at the right hand of God. He rules and reigns over the earth. And that's told us here, again, he's, he's the title, the Son of God, and the eternal Messiah, the King, the Lord, the, the one with authority over heaven and earth. That's Jesus today. But then we've got, a, we've got a new title here, or a title that we might not have considered before, that it's actually um, so important that Hebrews spends the next few chapters explaining it for us. And you see it here, since we have a great high priest. And... Um, I grew up in a, in a Christian family, um, and let me tell you, I grew up in a good Protestant family, and let me tell you, we didn't talk about priests. Okay, I did have a priest. I remember as a kid growing up, Jesus is my saviour, Jesus is my lord, Jesus is my king. I never heard Colin Buchanan sing about Jesus as my priest. Um, he's a Christian songwriter for kids. If you don't know who I'm talking, don't worry about it. When we think priest, it's very common for us, of course, to think of uh, a Catholic or an Orthodox priest. Actually, I don't know why I was so confused, because my background was Anglican, and we've got Anglican priests as well. And so it's common for us to think that way. Um, but what is a priest? If Jesus is our priest, what is a priest? Um, well, we, we need to understand um, that when the word priest is used here, it's not referring to the Catholic, Christian, uh, Anglican, whatever, uh, version of that. But it's referring specifically to the Old Testament priesthood. The priesthood that existed uh, in the part of the Bible before God, for God's people before, before God, for God's people before Jesus, um, the Old Testament priesthood. And so the connection being drawn here is Jesus is high priest as a fulfillment of that priesthood. Um, and so it's the Old Testament priesthood that we need to grapple with and understand in order to understand Jesus' role. Now, helpfully for us, have a look at chapter 5 in your Bible. What you'll see is chapter 5, the first 10 verses are actually tied together in explaining to us both the Old Testament priesthood, the roles and responsibilities, um, and the qualifying features, and secondly, uh, Jesus as priest. And the purpose of this is clear. Um, remember the context. The writer is writing this letter uh, initially to Jewish Christians. And so, so he's comparing and contrasting uh, their old priesthood with Jesus' priesthood in order to display how inferior their priesthood was and how Jesus is better. But I want to make something very clear for us here today because you might be thinking, okay, uh, this is very specific niche <laughs> about Jewish Christians. Um, what we need to understand as we read these next few words, verses, is that um, Jesus as priest is not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor used in the Bible in order to just reach Jewish people. Oh, you mean, oh, you mean he's this. He's, no, no, no. Um, the Bible is telling us, Hebrews is telling us that the reality of, um, of Jesus' existence at this very moment can only be understood by understanding the truth that he is the priest. He is your, if you are a Christian, he is your high priest today. And in fact, if you are a Christian, you are only a Christian because he is your high priest. So it's vital we understand what that even means, isn't it? And how it has consequences 
So just look at the first four verses very, very quickly. We see the roles and responsibilities, chapter 5, sorry, the roles and responsibilities of the high priest. Um, there's a bunch of things in there. I really just want to point out, um, really, verse 1, uh, the priest, the Old Testament priest, what, what's his purpose? Uh, we see here um, he represents the people in matters related to God, uh, in sacrifices for sins. The priest in the Old Testament um, was God's representative to people and the people's representative to God. And the way this primarily happened was through sacrifice. They would animal, take an animal sacrifice really one day a year, the Day of Atonement uh, in Jewish history. Yom Kippur is called, uh, which is still celebrated in a, in a version of uh, in, in um, the Jewish calendar today. And uh, the priest would go and make the sacrifice for sins um, for, for God's people. However, and you see it here, it's not just... Here's the thing. It's not just uh, the people's sins he's making a sacrifice for. Who else's sins is he making a sacrifice for? His own. He's a sinner. So he's making a sacrifice for his own sins. And you see a few other qualifying features here, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Um, he has to be a human being, not an angel, not a dead spirit. Um, he's empathetic in nature. Uh, but also, and this one's important, he's, he's um, verse 4, he, no one takes this honour on himself. He receives it when called by God. He has to be called by God, appointed by God. It's not a self-appointment. But what kind of high priest is Jesus? Um, how is Jesus a version of that? A and more to the point, um, how is Jesus being high priest mean he's able to help me in the reality of the, the temptation and pressure I feel in my life today to abandon Christ or, or to stray or to diminish him? Um, well, look at verse um, 5 through to verse 10, and we read uh, several things um, of great importance um, that are necessary for, for us to see. First of all, we see um, that he didn't choose himself. Uh, verse 5, verse 6, uh, God appointed him uh, the king, uh, the son of God as a title that he's given. Uh, God appointed him the priest, uh, the priest forever. Um, not only that, uh, you know, he, he was a human being, verse 7. He, he offered up cries uh, to God, um, not, not as a sort of a Zeus, a Thor kind of thing. No, no, he, he was a human being. Um, and so as a human being, in his tears, um, he offered up these cries to God. Why? Well, we're told that he offered up his cries to God because um, really he was doing so in reverent submission in the face of temptation, and if you zip back uh, to verse 15, you see, uh, in the face of all temptation, he didn't sin. Jesus has parallels with the Old Testament priesthood, but he succeeds it and superior to it in the very nature of the way he relates to temptation. Jesus is perfectly obedient. He does not sin. Even when he suffers, he does not sin. And so Jesus is high priest. He does not offer a temporary solution to the permanent problem of sinfulness by the sacrifice of an animal which would need to be sacrificed again and again and again. But Jesus offered himself up as a, it's not permanent, an eternal solution to the permanent problem of sin by offering up not an animal but himself. 
And the reason he was able and qualified to do that was through his obedience. If he'd sinned once, it's, it's not going to work. He had to be obedient to do it. But now the, the question uh, we need to ask, uh, I suppose, is, is not just about his qualifications and his ability, um, but how that has any consequence on us and what that actually means for us. I've got a friend who's a, a fireman, uh, and recently uh, he, he ran on a job which was um, very big. All the guys in his crew said the biggest jobs I've ever seen. A paint factory exploded in the Hunter Valley somewhere or other. And um, it was enormous, dangerous, fire everywhere. Buildings erupted, uh, everything. It was so big, uh, 50 fire trucks had to go to it. 200 firefighters there. Um, and you can imagine, you know, the, the New South Wales Fire Brigade with their powerful resources, the hose and their ladders, I don't know what they do, axes, fire, <laughs> They put it out, and we praise God for that. We do, don't we? Um, but I want you to imagine a different scenario, two different scenarios. One, they get there. They hear the alarm. They, they arrive. Um, but they don't pull out hoses. Instead, they pull out a water pistol. Their willingness to be there is very admirable, but their ability to help the problem is negligible. Or the other scenario, they've got all the equipment, but they hear the alarm go off at the station, and they just decide, oh, you know what? Let's watch the next episode on Netflix. Jesus' role as high priest is only relevant to us insofar as it is both qualified to help and insofar as he is willing to give us what we need. So is Jesus willing? Look at verse 9. Once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. For all who obey him. Jesus chose to die. He chose to die on a cross. He chose to take the wrath God had in store for him. He knew it was going to happen. He predicted it again and again and again, and yet he still chose to do it. He was willing to do it. And what's the result? The result of his perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice, and his willing death. Is eternal salvation. Eternal salvation for anyone who believes. What kind of help does Jesus offer? We have this worm's eye view of life. Every problem we think is the biggest, every problem today we think is the biggest problem in history. Boom, 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 boom. But when Jesus looks at the condition of the human race, he does not see the, the temporary problems of the day that we deal with as our largest problem. Today matters. It really matters. But the biggest problem any single one of us have, the biggest problem anyone you know has, is sin. And Jesus' help is to lay out his hand and rescue us from its consequences. And I want to say, if we think about um, the past in an unhelpful and harmful way in our lives, uh, I want to make it... I, I, I'm persuaded um, that if we think about the past in an unhelpful way, that's nothing compared to how most of us think about the future. Um, in other words, we don't think about it. Let me ask you a few questions. Um, where will you be in five years' time? What's your five-year plan? Let's go even further. What about your 10-year plan? Do you have a plan for 2031? How old will you be then? Don't think about it. Surely I have my life sorted by then. Surely. All of us have our hopes and dreams, our desires, our... Um, Wants for the future, geographic, financial, romantic, 
um, professional, we want to do things. In fact, we spend a lot of time worrying about tomorrow and the next day and the next day for our kids, for ourselves. It's a natural part of life. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, we're concerned, we're anxious. We, 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 we invest our time and energy into that. And yet what's striking is that um, considering how much time we spend worrying about tomorrow, how little time so many of us spend giving even a moment's thought to what happens next. Let's push further. Where will you be in a hundred years' time? We think, our culture tells us, death is the end. But Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, he says, that's not true. That's not true. You and I are eternal beings. Do you know that? With an eternal future. Think of it this way. In 100 years' time, every single person in this room will be alive. The question is, where will you be? And how will you get there? Jesus is our great high priest sacrificed himself to lay out his hand to help pick us up from the depths of despair. He put flesh on our bones. He gave us a new heart and a new spirit. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. Darkness to light, death to life. That's what Jesus did for you as as your high priest. Now, that's a pretty good priest, isn't it? No one else can give you that. But I do want to ask you a question. Um, when you consider that, if you, are, if you do consider yourself a Christian here today, when, when, you, when you consider what I've just said, when, when we think about what the Bible calls the gospel, and gospel, uh, a lot of you know, means good news, but let's go deeper. The good news is that Jesus died and rose from the dead. He ascended to the heaven so you could be saved and have the doorway to salvation open. You can go to heaven on the basis of what Jesus did. When you think of that truth, that hard, concrete reality, how does that make you feel right now? When you think, right now, just think of it. When Jesus did that, he did that for you. He bore your sins on his shoulders. He, he loves you so much. He, he, he sacrificed himself. How does that make you feel? Is that still the best news you've ever heard? Is it the best news you've ever heard? Is it, is it, is it, um, is it something you hold to as of primary importance? I'm not saying crying and weeping and whooping, although, amen, if you want to do that. I, I'm saying a deep-felt conviction, uh, faith beyond feelings, not emotional, although it can be emotional, but held deeply in your heart, is this the best news you've ever heard? And and if the answer is yes, I want to say, praise God, that is not from you, that is a gift of God. But if the answer is no, and don't fake it, who's, it's between you and God. If the answer is no, well, I have two things to say. One, if the answer is no, it either means you're not a Christian or you're in danger. Um, and and um, if the answer is no, I want you to take that very seriously. You need help. You need help. 
But secondly, I want to say to you, if the answer is no, um, the wonderful, blissful, incredible, amazing truth in this passage is that the help you need is here. Because you see, the promise of Jesus that we have in, in Hebrews uh, 4 and 5 is not just for eternal um, salvation, for, for the eternal help for our eternity. Although, yes, it is. Amen, it is. It should be the center of our hearts. But the promise we have here is that our high priest does not just offer us help for the future. He's not just ready and able to help our eternity. He is also ready and able, willing, has a heart to help you now, today. So that you will persevere, you will keep going. You see, this passage reveals to us something incredible about the heart of Jesus. He's not distant. He's not uncaring. He gets you. You ever meet someone you just click with? You're like, yeah. (laughs) Jesus gets you. I think there's two ways we, we see this really play itself out. Um, look at verse 14, uh, 15, 16 again. Um, this final part before we dig into the, the, the eternal promise of the high priest. Look at verse 14. Um, where the high priest has ascended into heaven. We hold firmly to the faith we profess. So pause there. Um, the purpose of what we're about to read is to help you hold firmly to the faith you profess. The gospel. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. My dear friends, I want you to consider both the temptation and the the sympathy of Jesus for you. We're told here um, that Jesus was tempted in every way. That's a curious expression, isn't it? But it does not mean, as in, well, we just need to work out what it doesn't mean. It does not mean um, that Jesus went through sinful temptation like we do. You know, every single temptation we have is almost always sinful, isn't it? Wrapped up within it, some desire that we shouldn't have. That's our temptation. That's not the temptation Jesus went through. Jesus' temptation was far greater than that. Jesus' temptation was in the face of the cross, in the face of the sacrifice he must make as our high priest for our eternal future to walk away, to abandon it, to disobey God, his Father in heaven. That was the, the, the temptation Jesus went through, and yet he perfectly obeyed it. He never swayed. And so like a marathon runner giving tips to a young kid starting out as a runner, he knows more than we do about temptation because he never folded. He always kept going. He never, he never fell short. Jesus' temptation to abandon his father's plan and, and indeed his father himself to sin was far greater and more powerful a temptation than we could ever imagine. So Jesus knows what your temptation is like. And not because he lusted, not because he, he um, was greedy, not, because he, not, not that sinful temptation, not in that way, but because he, he was tempted in a way far greater. He gets you. But that's not all. Look, look at the, the first part. Um, he em- empathizes with our weaknesses. You see, as we've just already seen, Jesus, um, he was a human being when he lived, fully, fully man. Um, 
And so he experienced many of the same weaknesses and sufferings that we go through in life. Do you know Jesus was lonely? You ever been lonely? Oh, man. I once woke up in, um, I woke up, I once moved to Darwin. I also woke up in Darwin when I moved there numerous times. Um, and for the first two weeks I was in Darwin, I didn't know anyone. You ever been to Darwin? Boy, that's a tough town to live in. It's a tough town to live in when you don't know a soul. Okay, and I just, I mean, COVID, lockdown, loneliness, isolation. Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely, to be betrayed. You ever been betrayed? You ever betrayed anyone? He knew what it was to um, be abandoned, uh, to be sad, to grieve, to look at the death of his friends, to weep. The frailty of our humanity was fully experienced by Jesus. And so Jesus gets you. And the way he gets you is all explained in that word empathize. Now the word empathize is actually, I'm not like a translation guy in the Bible, like, oh, this means that. But the translators of, of the version we're using have chosen empathize because um, generally I think the word sympathize, which is the literal translation, sympathize, has changed in our, the way we use it, so they didn't want to use it. But the real definition of sympathy isn't, it's not a hallmark card of pity. I'm sorry. There, there. That's not sympathy. Sympathy means um, to feel what the other person is feeling. Jesus sympathizes with you. Jesus feels what you're feeling. Um, Jesus has felt what you are feeling, and so he feels what you are feeling. Because even though Jesus is in the heavens, that has not diminished his tender heart, his concern, his care, his love, his deep affection for you. Jesus Loves you more than you love yourself. And you know how much you love yourself. He loves you more than that. Jesus, the, the Hebrews tells us, Je, Jesus is the radiance of God. He is the son of God, the Messiah, the high priest. And he is also your brother. Jesus cares for you. He feels what you feel because he's felt what you feel. We tend to think when things are going well in life, God is with me. Oh, God's with me. Look how well life is going. Thank you, God. But this text, um, this text tells us the opposite. It's when we're weak that he's here. In the face of our weakness, you know, he, he doesn't run from us, flee from you. He's not embarrassed of you. He's not ashamed of you. He runs to you. That's your high priest. Even in your sin. And he never sinned, but even in sinfulness, he gets you. He never experienced that, he never did that, but he knows the pressure and the temptation. He's not angry or disappointed, not in the way that we think of those words. He's not unapproachable and, and cold. You ever wronged anyone? I wronged someone the other day. Literally every day of my life I wronged someone. But um, I wronged someone um, via text message. I thought we were bantering. We weren't, it turned out. Um, and, um, <laughs> and I apologise. I'm a great apologiser. I've had plenty of practice. And, um, 
Uh, and he kind of gave me the cold shoulder for a while. Are you a cold? Yeah, he gave me that. I had to work my way back. That's not Jesus. That's not your Jesus. That's not the Jesus. That's not your high priest. No way. Jesus gets you. And because of his great sympathy with you, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You know, the throne in the Old Testament of the Bible uh, was a, a, thro- a seat of judgment for Jewish people. I and mean, when they view God on his throne, you see it in Isaiah 6. Isaiah approaches the throne of God. There's smoke, there's fire, there's angels, there's cherubim, there's all sorts of things. It's a, it's a thing of terror to approach the judgment seat of God. But how is it described for Christians? The throne of grace. And you and I, don't tell anyone, but um, a real bunch of yeah, idiots sometimes, aren't we? a real bunch of people who fall short of God all the time. Sinners, we're sinners. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence because of the grace and mercy shown to us by Jesus on the cross as our high priest because of our eternal reality. We may approach God today for help now, not trembling, not afraid, not worried that he's going to turn the cold shoulder on us, but with confidence. And the word confidence here is a verbal word. It's talking about speech. How do you and I, the ones who live by faith in what we cannot yet see, how do we approach God's throne of grace with confidence? We speak to God. We pray. Why would you pray to... um, Why would you go to a human uh, to uh, reach God for you? You know? Um, Why would you pray to a a dead person to, to go up to God for you? Why would you go um, uh, to like, who are the people who do seances and stuff? What is that? Mediums. Why would you go to a medium to speak to a dead person? You don't need to speak to a dead person. You can approach God's, God's throne of grace with confidence. Confidence that when you speak, he will listen. Like the child um, of the president who could run through the White House pass through all the security and go straight to the president's desk. That's your privilege through the sympathy of Jesus, your high priest and king, who has secured your future and offers you help today. Man. We pray, we profess our faith. Um, Jesus loves to help you. He wants to help you. The help he offers you is that he gets you. He is with you today, right now, this very instant. He gets you in your hardship and your, and your, your, um, your struggle. He understands you and he offers you the pathway out of doubt, of disbelief, of deception, but to confidence and grace and assurance and mercy. That's your priest. And so the question for us, um, as we consider these great truths, uh, is simple. Uh, is Jesus able? Is he willing to help? Yes and yes. Able to help for your future, able to help for your now, willing to help for your future, willing to help for you now. Um, and, and, 
I suppose the, the question for us uh, is what does that look like? What, how do we pragmatically, tangibly see that help uh, in our lives in the face of the temptation that we're considering? Um, and, and this is just what I want to finish on. And it's a real promise. I promise we'll finish on it. Um, you know, um, the temptation that the Hebrew Christians were facing is one that many of us face, isn't it? You know, the, the one to look backwards, um, to be prisoners of the past, uh, to, to engage in nostalgia, and the good old days, the good old days, the good old days. It was better back then, it was harder back then, it was tougher back then. Now, soft, inferior, doesn't matter, it's not the real thing. We all know people like that. If you've met me, I'm like that all the time. So, the spiritual temptation for that, though, is not to be, to be thought of as, as small. It's enormously tempting for us as Christians uh, to view our lives before Jesus we, we, we Photoshop the past and we maximise the, the fun parts, we minimise the bad parts and we think, that's man, I've given up so much to follow Jesus. That's better than Jesus. What am I doing? Why am I here? Or we look at the lives of other people we know who are not Christian people and the lives that they live in and we're consumed with jealousy as we consider what they've done, what they do, the freedom that they, that they have. And you, you imagine a version of your life like that and you think, I've lost something by being a Christian. I've missed out. They're living the best life. Or, or we do that Christian version of we think backwards to the hill that we've halfway climbed of spirituality. We think, oh man, I had so much zeal and passion there. But I can't go back. Those days are gone. I'm here now. This is my future. This is my forever. What's at the cause of all of those temptations? Well, I'm convinced, utterly persuaded. Look at, look at verse 14. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. What's the opposite of faith? Disbelief. A refusal to accept what's true as true. Disbelief. The core of all of these temptations is a refusal to believe Jesus in his promises to us. That he is better. That he is true. That he will keep his promises. That what he's done, has done, has affected your eternity and will affect that he does give a help um, which is better than anything that the world can possibly offer, that, that it's real and it's true and it's yours. And so if the problem we have is disbelief, what's the solution? Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. How do you hold firmly to faith? How do you grip tightly on your belief. Well, it won't be found in here. It won't be found in here. It won't be found in self-reflection. And I want to say it won't even be found in behavior. The only way to grow in faith is to more fully understand the object of your faith. The only way to grow as a Christian is to allow your soul to grow in its understanding of the enormity, the cosmic eternal enormity of Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The, the strategy given to us is not the mirror. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I've got to tidy my room. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I'll fix my life. I'll do that. No. The way forward for us is not backwards. You can't live there. You don't want to live there. Take the wisdom you can from it, leave it. It's not sideways. I wish I had that, I wish I had that. No, no, trust in the life that God has for you today. 
Trust that he is working in the hardship today. No. To approach, to keep approaching, keep approaching, keep approaching, keep approaching the throne of grace, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We more fully understand Jesus. We have our minds and our souls, our hearts, consumed with eternal reality of his magnificence. And as the the object of your faith grows... Your faith grows with it. You strengthen. For the Christian, we're not to live in the past. For the Christian, we can truly, honestly say, the best is yet to come. And that best of tomorrow makes us understand, appreciate, and, and have faith in today. Uh, let's pray to our great God that we would uh, be captured that way. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, you know our hearts and souls and you know where we're at. You know so many things are going on with us, with our trial and temptation. We're pulled this way and that, backwards, forwards to the side, consumed by the thought that life outside of you is better. But our dear Father, help us. Help us grasp and grapple with the reality of Jesus Christ, our high priest, who has sacrificed all so we may have all, who loves to help us, who wants to help us, who does help us, who who gives us what we need. And Father, for those of us who have been consumed with, um, with any of these things, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness of that disbelief, And to grow within us a faith, a trust, a living trust, um, that the best is yet to come. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.